Welcome to the Council of Institutional Investors podcast on corporate governance and financial regulation. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. The purpose of these monthly episodes is to update CII members and the general public on developments in corporate governance and related CII advocacy activities in connection with the administration's initiative to reform the U.S. financial regulatory system. This update covers the period from May 6th to June 2nd. Let's get started with the U.S. Congress. On May 3rd, three Democratic members of Congress sent a letter to Department of Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin and Federal Reserve System Chairman Jerome Powell to use their broad authority under the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, or CARES Act, to restrict large corporations that receive bailout funds from engaging in potentially harmful mergers and acquisitions. The letter signed by Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, and Rhode Island Representative David Cicilline asserted that publicly subsidizing the exploitive takeover of small and medium-sized companies would upend competition that helps keep markets functioning and stable. Noting that the Federal Reserve has discretion to impose conditions on the eligibility of corporations to participate in lending programs funded with CARES Act money, and also citing the Treasury Secretary's broad authority under the CARES Act to impose such terms and conditions and covenants, representations, warranties, and requirements as the Secretary so determines, the letter requested that Secretary Mnuchin and Chairman Powell use their broad authority and discretion to restrict large companies that receive taxpayer subsidized bailout funds from engaging in mergers and acquisitions. May 14th, a bipartisan group of four senators sent a letter to Treasury Secretary Mnuchin and Fed Chairman Powell urging them to take further action to stabilize the municipal bond market to ensure state and local governments have access to needed medium and long-term financing. The letter signed by Senators Robert Menendez of New Jersey, Tom Tillis of North Carolina, Sherrod Brown of Ohio, and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, observed that these entities are quickly deploying desperately needed funds to essential services in response to COVID-19, and that the municipal bond market has consequently been under extraordinary stress. The lawmakers argue that Treasury and Fed must ensure sufficient access to medium and long-term capital for state and local governments and warn that a retrenchment of state and local government spending will pose a grave threat to the Federal Reserve's goal of maximum employment. Although they acknowledge that the effort to address the immediate challenges through the municipal liquidity facility is a sensible and necessary first step, the lawmakers suggest that the Fed and Treasury using the authority provided under Section 4003 of the CARES Act, should establish a facility to purchase municipal bonds from issuers and in the secondary market across all points of the yield curve to enhance state and local government's continued ability to finance the delivery of key public services for the COVID-19 health emergency and rebuild the economy. On May 18, three Senate Republicans sent a letter to Senate Banking Committee Chairman Michael Crapo of Idaho and Ranking Minority Member Sherrod Brown of Ohio. The letter, signed by Florida Senators Marco Rubio and Rick Scott and Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton, requested the Senate Banking Committee 
expediently consider and report S-1731, the Equitable Act, to ensure that U.S. accounting and oversight regulations are applied equally to all firms listed on U.S. securities exchanges, asserting that Chinese companies listed on U.S. stock exchanges are widely shielded from meaningful oversight by American financial regulators, including the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, the senators contend that the situation has created an unfair advantage for Chinese over American companies, although they acknowledge that the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission recently issued statements highlighting the risks posed by emerging markets, including Chinese firms listed on American stock exchanges, they maintain that they are not a solution to the problem. Accordingly, they stress that it falls to Congress to ensure that the standards set about in law are applied across the board without preference for companies from one nation to another. On May 19th, Senator Mark Warner of Virginia and Representative Sidney Axney of Iowa sent a letter to SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Letter focuses on the importance of human capital management reporting for public companies in light of the COVID-19 outbreak. Letter asserts that the pandemic is exposing the many ways that company human capital management practices pose operational and reputational risk for short and long-term performance. Accordingly, they request that the SEC provide the guidance necessary to ensure timely and accurate delivery of critical human capital management information to investors, including three items. One, uh, compensation across the workforce. Two, investment and training, especially with regard to health and safety preparedness. And three, identification of workforce safety hazards and levels of risk. In addition, the letter urges the SEC to move forward with finalizing the proposed modernizations of Regulation SK's human capital management reporting requirements with certain improvements. Included among those improvements is providing investors and the public with critical workforce metrics such as total wages, total employees, whether workers are full-time or contractors, turnover and promotion rates, violations of workplace safety regulations, and spending on employee training opportunities. Now, on May 20th, the Senate passed by unanimous consent, S-945, the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act. The legislation introduced by Senator John N. Kennedy of Louisiana would prohibit securities of a company from being listed on any of the U.S. securities exchanges if the company has failed to comply with the PCOB inspections for three years in a row. Under the bill, if the SEC determines that an issuer has filed audit reports for three consecutive years prepared by a public company accounting firm with a branch or office that one, is located in a foreign jurisdiction and two, the PCOB is unable to inspect or investigate completely because of a position taken by an authority in its foreign jurisdiction as determined by the PCOB, the SEC shall prohibit the securities of an issuer from being traded on a national securities exchange or through any other method that is within the jurisdiction of the commission to regulate, including through the over-the-counter trading of securities. The bill would also require a foreign issuer that retains an audit firm to submit to the SEC documentation establishing that the issuer is not owned or controlled by a government entity in its jurisdiction. In addition, the bill would require a foreign issuer that receives an audit report 
from a registered audit firm during a non-inspection year to disclose in its Form 10-K, Form 20-F, or any equivalent or substantially similar form, among other information, one, that such a registered public accounting firm has prepared an audit report for the issuer during the period covered by the form, and two, the percentage of the shares of the issuer owned by governmental entities in the foreign jurisdiction in which the issuer is incorporated or otherwise organized, and three, whether governmental entities in the applicable foreign jurisdiction with respect to that registered public accounting firm have a controlling financial interest with respect to the issuer. On May 26, the House Financial Services Investment Protection, Entrepreneurship, and Capital Markets Subcommittee held a virtual roundtable to examine the impact of COVID-19 on U.S. capital markets. The subcommittee chairman, Brad Sherman, California, noted that U.S. capital markets have come through even under these most stressful conditions with, up until recently, traders working from home. Asked about S945, the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act, Hearing witness Tom Quadman, Executive Vice President of the U.S. Chamber, Center for Capital Markets Competitiveness, commented that our capital markets are based upon transparency and disclosure, and the SEC and PCOB have been able to work out reciprocal inspection agreements with other jurisdictions, even if there are differences based on those two principles, adding that his hope is that the SEC and the PCAOB can come up with some sort of agreement with China on these issues. Chairman Sherman underscored the importance of ensuring that all companies, including Chinese companies that are listed on U.S. exchanges, provide investors with the auditing assurances that regulators insist on for U.S.-based companies. Turning now to activities at the White House, on May 19th, President Trump issued an executive order directing the heads of all federal agencies, including the Securities Exchange Commission, to, among other measures, identify regulatory standards that may inhibit economic activity and consider, one, taking appropriate action consistent with applicable law, including through the issuance of proposed rules, to temporarily or permanently rescind, modify, waive, or exempt persons or entities from those requirements, and, two, exercising appropriate temporary enforcement discretion or appropriate temporary extensions of time as provided for in enforceable agreements with respect to those requirements for the purpose of promoting job creation and economic growth insofar as doing so is consistent with the law. The order also requires the heads of all agencies, including the chairman of the SEC, to one, review any regulatory standards they have temporarily rescinded, suspended, modified, or waived during the public health emergency to determine which, if any, would promote economic recovery if made permanent, and two, report the results of their findings to the Office of Management and Budget Director, among other officials. In addition, the executive order requires the leaders of all agencies, excluding the Department of Justice, to accelerate procedures by which a regulated person or entity may receive a pre-enforcement ruling with respect to whether proposed conduct in response to the COVID-19 outbreak is consistent with the statutes and regulations administered by the agency. Pursuant to President Trump's previously issued executive order back in October on administrative enforcement actions and adjudications, the OMB director, 
the assistant to the president for domestic policy and the assistant the president for economic policy may issue memoranda providing guidance on this order's implementation, including by setting deadlines for the reviews and reports required under the order. On May 29th, speaking at the White House, President Trump discussed the U.S. relationship with China and outlined new measures intended to protect American security and prosperity. Those measures include taking action to protect the integrity of America's financial system by instructing the President's Working Group on Financial Markets to study the differing practices of Chinese companies listed on the U.S. financial markets with the goal of protecting American investors and stressing that investment firms should not be subjecting their clients to the hidden and undue risks associated with financing Chinese companies that do not play by the same rules. Let's move now to recent activities of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. On May 19th, the Council of Institutional Investors sent to the SEC a supplemental comment letter in response to the SEC's November proposal to amend Rule 14A8, the shareholder proposal rule. Our letter included an analysis CI staff conducted on the impact of the SEC's proposed changes to the resubmission thresholds in Rule 14A8. Using shareholder proposal data for the period 2011 through the third quarter of 2019, the CII staff analysis found that the SEC's proposed resubmission thresholds would have more than doubled the number of excluded proposals during that period. And more specifically, would have resulted in a significant reduction during that period in the number of shareholder proposals for independent shares and to improve disclosure on political contributions and lobbying. The analysis found that the SEC's proposed resubmission thresholds would make resubmission of shareholder proposals especially difficult at dual-class stock companies. Letter also noted that only 13% of Russell 3000 companies received a shareholder proposal on average uh, during uh, the period from 2004 to 2017, indicating that the argument that shareholder proposals are burdensome to many companies is simply unsubstantiated. Our letter also stated that shareholders may react to the proposed heightened restrictions on shareholder proposals by resorting to blunter signaling mechanisms such as votes against incumbent board members. Also on May 19th, uh, the SEC announced that it would hold a staff roundtable on July 9th, 2020, to hear the views of investors, other market participants, regulators, and industry experts on the risks of investing in emerging markets, including China. On May 28th, CI sent a letter to the SEC opposing the Commission's proposal to expand the exempt offering framework. Our letter argued that expanding the existing framework could lead to a lower number of SEC-registered companies and undermine the public capital markets to the detriment of both institutional and retail investors. Our letter also argues that the SEC proposal fails to adequately consider the potential costs of the proposed revisions to long-term investors and the capital markets generally. In other governance news, on May 7th, the Council of Institutional Investors affiliate, the CII Research and Education Fund, published a report on 46 shareholder rights plans or poison pills that were adopted by U.S. public companies so far this year. Nearly all were adopted in the wake of the plunge in share prices at the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic in late February and early March. The CI ref report provides general background on poison pills and their evolution and looks at the 2020 pills, including their duration, their trigger thresholds, their qualifying offer provisions, 
passive investor exceptions, and dead hand provisions. The report is linked to a live spreadsheet that we anticipate maintaining for at least the next several months, including all new pill adoptions. On May 14th, CI sent a letter to the S&P Dow Jones indices expressing disappointment with the index provider's recent decision to restore Facebook to the S&P 500 ESG index. Our letter notes, Facebook has a dual class voting structure that gives founder Mark Zuckerberg 58% of total voting power, even though he owns only 14% of the economic value of the company. And Facebook's management has refused requests by shareholders to adopt a time-based sunset of its dual class structure, despite repeated requests from many of its shareholders. Our letter reiterated our strong support for S&P's 2017 decision to exclude new dual class companies from the S&P 500 index and noted that it seems odd that the S&P 500 ESG index is not following the same policy. Our letter concludes by noting that voting rights are a key aspect of governance and underlay accountability of management to shareholders for ESG generally. The World Economic Forum's business constituency, known as the International Business Council, recently solicited comments on a consultation paper contemplating creation of a sustainability disclosure framework. The suggested framework in the consultation would involve a global industry trade group selecting its favored industry agnostic metrics and disclosures from among a broad range of existing frameworks. CII submitted the response to the consultation on May 21st. That response expresses our support for a system in which companies follow sustainability reporting standards set by independent third-party standard setters, similar to the model that has existed for decades involving financial accounting and reporting. We believe the movement towards standardized corporate disclosure on ESG matters would benefit from fewer new initiatives and more participation in the development of standards undertaken by existing independent standard setters. The consultation's deadline was May 26th. Finally, on May 29th, the International Organization of Securities Commission, or IOSCO, issued a statement underscoring the importance of investors and other stakeholders in having timely and high quality information about the impact of COVID-19 on issuers operating performance, financial position, and prospects. Noting that current circumstances may make disclosures outside the financial statements more challenging, IOSCO confirms its commitment to the development, consistent application, and enforcement of high quality reporting standards and disclosure regulations. In a statement, IOSCO reaffirms the importance of one, disclosure of the impact on amounts recognized, measured, and presented in the financial statements. Two, transparent and complete disclosures, noting that in an environment of heightened uncertainty, disclosures should be entity-specific and transparent. And three, issuers remaining mindful of the elements of reliable and informative non-GAAP measures. IOSCO also notes that interim financial information will require more robust disclosures of material information and managers' response to the changing circumstances and reminds auditors of their responsibilities 
to report on key audit matters. Finally, IOSCO encourages issuers to balance the flexibility provided by regulators extending the period to file financial information with the responsibility to provide timely and comprehensive financial information that includes reasonable and supportable judgment. That completes my corporate governance and financial regulation update. If you have any questions regarding any of the issues discussed, please feel free to email me at jeff, J-E-F-F, at C-I-I dot O-R-G. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.